when you get old, that's all you're really looking for in deodorant is to not have an allergic reaction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Aluminum free. Right. for the Mendangerous World Tree in New York City. I'm your host, Shane. And I'm your host, Ishan. And welcome to episode 134 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're talking about world dragons, world trees, and world building as we discuss creation myths. But first, the rogue traders read a book in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign. And later, Odin collects knowledge and a retinue of animals in the character Creation Forge. So before we get to that, uh, something interesting happened when uh, our hobby collided with your day job, and uh, Old Spice decided to release a D&D character class called The Gentleman. So now you say D&D, but is this necessarily a D&D class? Well, they weren't able to say D&D in their ad copy because they didn't have the rights to it, so it could be Pathfinder as well. It's just the greatest role-playing game. Ah, well, it it is definitely built for something uh, 3.5 yeah exactly (laughs) which is definitely not the greatest role-playing game (laughs) no (laughs) thacko right okay so what is the gentleman i don't know man the gentleman is like a pseudo sexist kind of class that gets some weird charisma abilities i guess and then eventually can become a being of pure energy that blows things up with his mind whenever he wants right after he gets an mba Well, right, to solve complex organizational challenges. Does the gentleman need to be a man? No, I think there's something. They're gentle ladies, it says, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, There there is some stuff in here that requires the opposite sex and a lot of other stuff that doesn't. So it's a little bit weird in that, too. Yeah, it goes back and forth. You can marry anyone you want, but if you need to get back into the class after falling, because it has falling mechanics, (laughs) (laughs) it only works with a member of the opposite sex. Yep. Uh, meanwhile, your biceps give you charisma bonus uh, in any charisma check. So, great. <laughs> uh, cool that, you know, the persistent march of D&D into mainstream culture continues. Uh, I think there are a bunch of people who are going to be exposed to D&D for the first time through this Old Spice campaign. <laughs> yeah, that feels a little weird. Uh, I I think there's also some people in D&D who will be exposed to Old Spice for the first time. <laughs> we should all be thankful for that. I think Adventurers League is going to get a little bit strange uh, in the next few months. Like, you know, after a Community runs D&D episodes, new people show up and their only exposure is Community. Right. And now we're going to get a, I don't know, people who used to use Axe and now use Old Spice (laughs) and are very excited about playing Terry (laughs) Crews. But you know what? We've all been there. I was 14 and playing this game. Yeah, I I mean, whatever. It's a a cute marketing stunt, I guess, uh, that's not horribly damaging, but isn't great. Well, I I would say it, it is horribly damaging because it has iterative attacks. Okay. All right. Stop stop pretending this is a real game thing. (laughs) Yeah, someone at Old Spice used to play D&D and doesn't anymore. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, so rarely am I uh, grateful to be marketed at by faceless multinational corporations, but here's to you, Unilever. All right, so speaking of being taken advantage of by overlords, Shane, 
where are we in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign? So the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign is our Warhammer 40k Rogue Trader game played using Dark Heresy 2nd Edition rules by Fantasy Flight Games. And on the dead world of Malajact, a Dark Angel, an Inquisitor, and a Rogue Trader walk into a bunker. Ow. Followed by the schmucks from the His Enduring Light. (laughs) In an attempt to return a recovered Imperial Reliquary, you have found yourselves learning a lot of secrets that will probably get you killed. The Dark Angel Interrogator Chaplain Visago has explained the secret history of the Dark Angels, the Fallen, and his duty to redeem them. And then he also explains that Malajak was once a Fallen Fortress World after they scattered and was classified for Ordo Exterminatus, which explains its uninhabitable, unfriendly environment. So why is it that recovering this reliquary was so much easier than returning this reliquary? (laughs) I mean, some books want to be found. (laughs) Oh, boy. Well, it's time to read that book. Or at least have it read to us, I suppose. Yeah, so... I don't think we're allowed to touch it. No, you are. So, like, the team is assembled, um, you know, Inquisitor, Interrogator Chaplain, uh, Lord Captain Roth, uh, the other rogue trader, and then your rogue traders deep within a bunker on the surface of Malajak, below the surface of Malajak. And you you end up spending hours and then even days kind of analyzing this codex, the codex cipher, uh, which you discover contains the heretical truth of Lord Cipher. I think you mean Echo and Doc analyze it. Trank does a lot of target practice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the way it worked is, you know, data analysis and interpretation, that was kind of left to the nerds. Uh, the rest of you kind of were trying to buddy up between Roth and the Inquisitor and the Interrogator Chaplain to make sure that you weren't summarily executed when this whole affair was ended. Yeah, Trank and the Interrogator Chaplain got along pretty well. I mean, as well as you can get along with someone who looks down on you. Yeah. You literally. Know. Well, like, she's a 14-year-old super psyker, and uh, you have the mental capacity of a 14-year-old <laughs> with no psychic ability. We're such an odd couple. Exactly. So... Who is Lord Cipher? Uh, he's a BBEG, a stereotypical BBEG. Is he? Who uh, shows up in random locations in 40K history to make shit happen. Yeah, he is a legendary fallen dark angel. Sort of a confusing figure. It's interesting you think he's a BBEG. Because uh, at certain times, he's the leader of the fallen. He kind of... Uh, you know, leads them on a raid or attacks a, a, a planet or for some reason. At other times, he just kind of like rounds them up and serves them up to the interrogator chaplains. Uh, Look, I just get all my information from Visago, okay? <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't like him very much. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, you know, so he's within the Codex Cipher, there's instances where he's just directly attacked the Imperium or undermined its war efforts in some way. Uh, otherwise, he has intervened at the last moment to save Imperial forces. It's um, like the the author of the Codex is sort of baffled at how unpredictable and, and capricious he is. I mean, even more baffling than that is that Cypher's apparently been killed multiple times and then just keeps showing up a few years later. Yeah. So he's a vexing figure uh, and a polarizing one. But when you get to the section about Malajak, that's when things get really interesting and you start to gain a little clarity about what it is that would bring this motley crew together on this planet. Yeah, it turns out this was Cypher's main base. And after the Fallen repelled an attack by the Dark Angels, the Inquisition found out and decided to exterminate us the whole stupid thing. Which is a little bit different from the story that you heard just, you know, 
a few minutes prior to opening the book even about how uh, the Dark Angels ordered exterminatus on this planet. Uh, it turns out that there was conflict between the Inquisition and the Dark Angels about what to do. I think they uh, did the wrong kind of exterminatus, okay? Like, yes, they glassed the surface of the planet, but I would really have preferred if they had blown it up with, you know, a proper barrage of cyclonic torpedoes. Right. Really, they, they half-assed this job. <laughs> there's still an atmosphere. <laughs> well, uh, for what it's worth. Yeah, a few thousand <laughs> years later, there's an atmosphere again. <laughs> Uh, the other thing you learn from the Codex is that Cypher's fortress on Malajact was said to be an impregnable black mass built into the face of a mountain overlooking a valley kill zone where many Dark Angels fell in the assault. Sorry, did you say impregnable black mass? Yes. Out in the desert? Yes. One that you might spot out of the corner of your eye while careening from the upper atmosphere? One that you almost wouldn't even believe that you had seen? Oh, garbage. Well, it's still here. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the location in the in the codex is not precise, but it is in this region, and you guys think uh, you might have the inside track on where to find it. Yeah, at least two of us. I think it was Echo and Trix. Correct. Spotted it out of the window of the gun cutter, or and no, out of the window of the drop pod. Out of the drop pod, mm-hmm. and, and didn't even believe that they had seen it until they kind of compared notes and mm-hmm. realized, oh, that's a real thing. Well, the book says it is. <laughs> right. <laughs> So the records show decades of infighting between the Inquisition and the Dark Angels on how to handle this secret because, you know, it was previously secret from the Inquisition. um, And now that they know, like everyone recognized that this was one of those things that had the potential to like splinter the Imperium, right? So they agreed to take the secret of Cypher, seal all the records in this codex, and then lock it with both sides. Until now. Right, yeah. Uh, when you when they needed to combine both a rosette and a Crozius Arcanum in order to open the reliquary. So here we are, post-information dump. Um, the thing I hate in 40K about getting a bunch of information is that it now means that I typically will be forced to act upon it. We don't yet know how, though. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I suspect impregnable black mass in the wastes might be a destination soon. <laughs> so before we trudge out into the wilderness, the best thing to do is to get to know as many of our new companions as possible. Yeah, you spent a week, uh, you know, in a in a bunker with them, so you you think you've got something of a measure of them. Mm-hmm. And there's Inquisitor Felicitas, who, you know, judging from her name, is probably very cheerful, um, likes to talk, uh, is uh, really you know, the lucky charm of the party, right? <laughs> sure. <laughs> No, the, probably the opposite of that. Dark and... She's 14. She's awful. Yeah. Uh, well, she's a massively powerful psyker. Um, and somehow hoodwinked two rogue traders. Well, okay. Hoodwinked one rogue trader and some people posing as rogue traders. <laughs> okay, fair. Plus a dark angel into her service. And it does seem like she cares about something on this stupid planet more than finding Cypher himself. Which right. seems to be all that Visago's interested in. Yeah, uh, that, that's the main thing you get between them, is that Visago, the interrogator chaplain, uh, is, is more openly hostile towards everyone, clearly doesn't think you're uh, deserving to know these secrets. But he his interest is in hunting down the fallen and Cypher himself. Inquisitor Felicitas seems to think there could be valuable information left behind when Cypher fled. Or if not information, artifacts, records, you know, something of importance to 
the Imperium itself. And finally, there's Lord Captain Duhan Roth, who for the very first time is on the same level as us. He is on our level. Right. <laughs> because though he is smart and competent, he is definitely in over his head. Now, we are not smart nor competent, but we are definitely in over our heads. Right. And for once, he sees us as natural allies since we all have the most to lose because, of course, whenever this business is done, there's a 95% chance we're just going to be murdered. Exactly. <laughs> and you don't have a you know super useful rogue trader fleet at your beck and call in order to uh, you know continue serving in this whole endeavor. What? We have... Um, One ship. Yes. And we have a gun cutter that can't get to the surface. Yep. And... <laughs> a handful uh, of drop pods. Some bulk loaders. That are, are those reusable? Yeah, yeah. They oh, are. good. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you've, you've also got, uh, let's see, a bosun who's a dark Eldar, a cargo compartment full of orcs mm-hmm, hiding mm-hmm. a, a uh, alpha psyker child, <laughs> if you recall. You we have, have a, a heretic for a uh, chief medica. We mostly didn't bring that up. Yeah. Funny how that got left off the list, huh? Yeah. Although, I mean... You know, it's in our back pocket, just in case. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> I mean, your Seneschal's carrying around a Dark Eldar clave, so... Which he won in combat. Yeah, that's a word for it. <laughs> all right, so we form a plan, because really that's the only thing we can do right now. We're all going to split up and search the entire region for Cypher's Fortress. Our team, the His Enduring Light crew, randomly picks a direction where the fortress might be, quote unquote randomly picks a direction yeah you guys are like yeah okay i mean like you guys go west we'll go east i guess it's it's a fair way to do it right it's all the same whatever yeah, exactly uh yeah except that you know about that obsidian fortress that was uh built into the side of a mountain in a valley to the east our hope is roth trudges out into the desert and finds nothing we find something and hopefully that will be enough of a bargaining chip to keep us not dead exactly So we'll find out what happens next, next week. So this week, we have a topic suggested by a friend of the show, Matt Perotti, who's also one of our buddies from the RPG Academy, and one of our buddies from Long Island. Mm -hmm. Long Island. Long Island. Matt wants to know about creation myths. So Shane, what the hell are they? So creation myths are stories of how the world began that are shared by a culture. They're often sacred beliefs like they're they're religious in nature uh often um and the plots usually involve like deities or humans or their their ancestors or animals doing uh, human type things uh the, the superhuman type things you know <laughs> like, uh outlandishly impossible type things right uh in order to kind of bring order from the primordial chaos right yeah everyone does seem to feel like that's how things started a big chaosy soup. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then the way that they're useful, anthropologically speaking, is that they kind of help answer questions about a culture's view of the world. The way that they attribute all of that chaos around them and and what provides order to it. So, you know, when, when the weather is terrible, is that Odin being angry? Is that Zeus being disappointed? Is that uh, just the random happenings of like a, an unpredictable environment you know what what is it that causes things that humans can't necessarily explain so one of the uh, creation myths that i think is gaining more popularity recently probably considering marvel movies is norse mythology mm-hmm. because in the beginning there were giants yep and the giants were 
were formless. Well, they're like and the spirit of Odin moved across the giants. No, there's like no, no, so, no, so no, there no, were yeah. frost giants, and then there was like Odin and his brothers, and then like they went and they slew a giant, as you do. And then the giant bled so much that it drowned all the other giants, except for like one giant and his wife who escaped and then repopulated the giants. But I don't know what I don't know. Giants happened. Anyway, so they kill Emir the giant, and then they use his corpse basically to shape the world. So, like, his flesh becomes the earth, and then his blood becomes water, and his bones become mountains, and his maggots become dwarves, and, you know, they build the world. We're all living on a corpse. His hair becomes trees. Ooh. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, so tasty. (laughs) Uh, So that sounds a little confusing. Yeah, I mean it's a uh, it's allegorical. <laughs> um, uh, it seems a little barbaric. A little bit, yeah. Uh, Pretty bloody. Mm-hmm. Is that how you would describe the Norse people? Because <laughs> I would. <laughs> I mean, not right now. It seems like a pretty nice, you know, social democracy. Yeah, they're, they're fine now, but but Vikings <laughs> but a thousand years ago. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like uh, they they were a culture that was was based on raiding their neighbors, right? And and I know that they had other agrarian pieces of society and stuff as well but like you know if if you were gonna have a society that prized its ability to like quickly invade sack and pillage and then return home like yeah your creation myth that starts with murdering and pillaging a giant that makes sense right we take what we need and then we build a society exactly and like the society that we build is good and better than what was before and we'll just kill everybody we don't care really we should have killed more giants exactly (laughs) So explain to me why we're talking about this on an RPG podcast. Because, like you said, we could drill down into this anthropologically and talk about why different societies have different kinds of creation myths. But in an RPG, how can you use this in a game? Yeah, so we'll talk about a couple different ways. But I think the the reason we're really talking about it is just that creation myth is naturally a starting point, right? So as you're doing world building or if you're looking at a setting... Like the creation myth helps to inform the the general worldview of the world, right? Of the of all the people in it, and and they might be conflicting and they might be different, but they're kind of a, a starting place for your world building. Yeah, in a fictional setting, it's quite possible that whatever creation myth you have is actually true. So you know, in the real world, you get a society that makes a creation myth, and that tells you a lot about the society. In a fantasy setting or in an RPG or fictional world, it could be the other way around, right? You have built this creation myth, and then from there, that will inform what the societies in this world are actually like. Right, exactly. So, but but this is not always important in a game, right? No. So I think that's the first step to using creation myths in your RPGs at all is determine exactly how much you want players interacting directly with the myth and then kind of build it around that. So in like a modern Call of Cthulhu game, I wouldn't even bother with a creation story. <laughs> like you don't need one. Uh, one, Cthulhu provides its own. And two, like it's not super important what the Judeo-Christian creation myth is to how, you know, Innsmouth functions. Right. The entire point of those kinds of games is once you discover that information, you go insane. Right. Right. <laughs> so it's just like, cool ignore it it's not important uh the the flip side is like you know in a fantasy game about defeating the ultimate evil amongst all evils like it 
could be important. Like it, like you said, it could actually be history, right? It, it could be the foundational events that set everything into motion that led you to where you are today. Um, it could also just be, you know, similar to Odin slaying a giant. It, it could just be window dressing for the way that people behave in that world. So you need to make the decision of like, how important is this going to be? Wait, so are you saying that Odin didn't actually kill a giant? I'm saying Just so that to begin the world. I'm saying that in my setting called Earth, mm-hmm. he didn't. But if your setting called Earth, he did. I don't know. I'm okay that with that. Sounds like a heresy to me. Maybe in your setting it is. <laughs> <laughs> in my setting, uh, the emperor built the <laughs> built Terra, oh, holy Terra. Fair, for us. fair. And I think that that's an interesting point that you make. Um, 40k has a creation myth. But it's not about the beginning of the universe or the galaxy. It is about the beginning of the Imperium. Right. You know, the Horus heresy is the creation myth of 40K. You know, how the emperor made the Primarchs and then some of them rebelled and then the emperor was mortally wounded and now sits on the throne and here's where we are. Here's why the world is the way it is. Or like Shadowrun. The creation myth is not how the world came into existence. It's how did the world become the way that it is now where we have you know, uh, giant corporations and elves and dwarves running around. Right, right. So one of the reasons that I really like incorporating these kinds of myths into a game is that they don't need to be concrete in any way. They can be essentially allegory. Like, not everything that is named in a myth needs to be a real place. Like, Shangri-La doesn't actually need to exist. Right. Um, the, the world tree does not have to be a physical tree. But But it is. Well, okay, but it doesn't have to be. (laughs) (laughs) It could be, in Shadowrun, a skyscraper. Right. Uh, Tree of Life Corp. Oh, mm, I like it. Likewise, every every character doesn't need a name. Norse mythology does name every single giant, right? But slaying a giant could be enough. Or, you know, it it could be the hero who slew the giant is what created uh, the world, not necessarily that one... Uh, entity Odin and if you think about it right like the level of detail that's ascribed to it sort of shows the importance of it like all the things that aren't named aren't important all the things that are left vague and and poorly described like what the world was like prior to Odin slaying Ymir not that important to the myth yeah and even the names that you have in these myths they are only (laughs) names now because they were identified previously in myths. Like, Adam just means Earth. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it, it wasn't, oh, we'll give him a, an impressive name. It was, I called you dirt. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> he was. Or Adam like got that dirt. <laughs> or like, what is the emperor's name in 40K? No, I don't think he ever actually is ever he's, really he's named. He's just right? the emperor. Right, yeah. he's the emperor. He right. is. Well, that's so that's a perspective thing, right? Because the the story of the emperor exists within the Imperium and and there's no need for him to have a name for anybody to know his name who exists now. Um, but presumably he did have a name back when he was, you know, like inhabiting all of the great minds of humanity uh, as like a psychic presence. Um, but even, even as the GM, right, the all knowing GM running a 40 K game, like canonically, there's not a, even a name for the emperor, right? I don't think mm-hmm. he has one. Mm-hmm. No, but again, that's like a perspective, like perspective of the storytelling. The, the name isn't important to the emperor. And the emperor can't tell you his name because he's a corpse. Well, once he gets that text-to-speech device. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing about using allegory and, and using more more like vagary 
is that when you do provide vivid details, they really pop, right? Like the emperor on his golden throne becomes very provocative because um, it, it stands out amongst all the other like gothic milieu around it. It's also very cool if your players then find out eventually, like that's actually true. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's literal. Right. And like we mentioned before, the myth that you have can set the tone for the world as it exists in whatever your present day is. You know, if you've got a violent creation myth that suggests that you, that suggests a society that values that kind of violence or conquest or, or sees it as a reasonable or a necessary end. Likewise, you know, if your creation myth is around like paradise lost, like the Judeo-Christian myth, it shows that there's the world or the cultures in the world are in search of something better, right? Like that the world is kind of a, a pausing point um, and, and that there, there's something that, that could be. So in most RPGs, you're not usually playing at the dawn of time. You know, you are not the first people in the world. You are not hanging around with the primordials. Usually the information that you're getting about uh, creation is coming in the forms of riddles or more likely even uh, a prophecy or or just oral tradition like error prone communication telephone <laughs> yeah <laughs> so we talked a lot about this in episode 45 about prophecies but including a creation myth in a in a prophecy is a great way to tie your players to the setting itself it really grounds the characters in the place that they live because these characters have grown up in this society. They they probably d- don't even know when they first heard the creation myth because, you know, they've been told these things since they were in the cradle. But your players are often experiencing them for the first time. And it it really helps them to experience the the way that these stories are so integral to uh, the, the setting that they're playing in now if uh, they're part of some sort of prophecy that is either driving what the characters need to end up doing or is informing them of the sort of uh, the greater machinations that are happening in the world. Yeah, it can give them kind of guideposts about what's going on. It also gives you as a GM the opportunity to create new prophecies that spin out of the creation myths that have already been established. Yeah, so if you're creation myth is about how elves and men and dwarves were created right then you can use that myth like kind of end it on a prophecy right that someday will come when the elves leave their forests and the dwarves leave their mountain homes and something will cause them to rise and unite right it's sort of prophesizing that 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 it's a holding period it's it's giving you a call to action to your players from the very outset of the setting that of course is where we get black friday sales exactly what else could get the dwarves to come out of the mountains and the elves to come out of the forests and appear at target at 6 a.m 200 flat screen tvs <laughs> buy one get one nutella right uh, the alternative then is to um, use the myth as it exists and then create new prophecies for the players based on what happened right so um you know, if if your creation myth was about uh, you know hunters sort of driving some great predator, some great wolf out of you know uh, human lands to to save people, uh, then your prophecy could be about the great wolf awakening, rising again, hungry to consume the world that cast him out. 
that's a good point about uh, antagonists who are never fully defeated. It is very useful if you're making creation myth or if you're adjusting one or using one to make note of what players in those myths are not out of commission eternally. Right. And also, you know, like it's a myth. So even if they're dead, they might not be dead dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like even, you know, um, if, if you think of, of Paradise Lost, right? Like Lucifer is cast into hell and becomes Satan. God defeated him. He didn't kill him. You know, like the the story of Christianity is still about the devil tempting people, right? Yeah, he's still there. I mean, even even at the end, right? The, sort of the opposite of creation myth, right? What, what is supposed to happen at the end oh, of yeah. times? Yeah, exactly. The devil still doesn't die, right? <laughs> still there, useful in stories. Um, and then keep in mind, this gives uh, an either an allegorical or a literal explanation for why conflict and greed and, you know, weather and bad luck exist in your setting. So plan that according or or set that according to whatever your genre is. So it's appropriate. But, um, you know, in more primitive settings, the weather is a huge, huge issue. Uh, In more advanced settings, you know, the uh, perils of the warp are a big issue. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I love taking those um, like old wives tales or like um, sailors superstitions that you hear a lot about in the real world and making it so that in your setting, nope, that's real. Right? Oh, yeah. Uh, when it when it rains and the sun's still out, it's because angels are actually crying. <laughs> we better find the person who made them sad. <laughs> and every time you touch yourself, the gods really do kill a kitten. Yes, the Mormons are right. <laughs> Because these don't need to be uh, myths in your game, right? This is this can be just ancient history, or you know, depending on when you're setting this, it's not even that ancient, right? It could be you could be uh, playing a game in the beginning of days, and this was like last generation, right? Yeah, and and you know, even that, uh, it's not a binary; it can be a scale, right? So pieces of it can be accurate, pieces of it can be inaccurate. Um, you know, the the errors and the retelling and those sorts of things. It's also really useful if you're using creation myths that have already been written by someone else or established in some sort of a canon. Some of them are true, some of them are not, and it is up to your players to figure out which is the case. Right. Uh, and you touched on this with um, with 40k and Shadowrun, but keep in mind that that creation myths don't necessarily have to be around the creation of the universe or the world or people in general. Right. It can just be about the creation of a culture. So like you said, the creation myth of the Imperium in, in Warhammer 40k is the Horus Heresy. And to a lesser degree, sort of the pre-imperial age under the Emperor. Right, the war in heaven. Right. If you really want to go all the way back. <laughs> right. Um, you know, like in Battlestar Galactica, um, the creation myth is really around the 13 colonies, right? Like Earth is this super, is this sort of like super mythical origin of humanity, but like you know, humans existed from Earth and then the colonies were founded. That's where the myth really begins. Yeah, you get the same kind of thing in Firefly where you have Earth that was, which their information about it is spotty. Um, and then you also get this nice dramatic irony where like we are from Earth that was, right? right? And we can be like, well, that's not that's not true. That's not that's real not, Chinese. Not at all. <laughs> Nothing like that, Jane. But with all this information, you can then provide context for pretty much anything that you want to use in your game that is going to be unexplainable, um, you know, powerful entities. If you're a player, this can be a great place to mine for a warlock patron or, um, you know, some uh, 
origin for for an item that you use as an inheritor or you know names for your noble title mm-hmm. um, as a GM you know names for your deities if you want to create different kinds of monster races or make new artifacts yeah I love the idea that like behind like every great heroic tale you know there was some some set of tools got used right like no one does everything completely barehanded so the ring that Odin wore while slaying Emir uh, would be the super powerful artifact, right? Uh, even though it was just like a piece of jewelry and didn't actually have any real effect on the outcome. I mean, it's covered in giant blood. Right, which means it obviously kills giants because that's what Amir's blood did. Drowned all the it giants. It drowns giants. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you just like, you point the ring at some giant and their lungs fill with blood. Once per day. Yeah. <laughs> Drown target giant. <laughs> right. <laughs> So you mentioned this a bit before, but there's a sliding scale of how much interaction your players are going to have with the creation myth of the setting, all the way from absolutely none to, oh my God, it it informs everything they do. Yeah. So like on the, the very low end, you've got like absolutely no awareness that creation myths even exist, right? Like you're stomping kobolds in a dungeon. It doesn't matter. Uh, and at the very high end, it's like the creation myth is the central mystery or conflict of your campaign. Uh, it's the player's primary motivation to, um, you know, resolve that. Wait, when you're fighting Tucker's Kobolds and like you kill them, they're not like, oh no, a Shardalon, help me. <laughs> okay, I mean, yeah. Someday the wolf will rise. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's actually what the players scream. Okay. <laughs> as Tucker's Kobolds are, are Someday slaying the them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I had a backstory. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, then you know somewhere in the middle is is something where like the creation myth is informing a player or a couple players uh, but it's not really central to the campaign right so like the players might be aware of it but they're not really interacting with it or if it is it's it's sort of a secondary factor um, that's sort of that middle ground and of course as you're playing the game this can change over time you know if you are a player and you hear about some of the creation myths and that piques your interest you can pursue that information you can spend more time talking to other characters who are more heavily involved with that information you can uh tell the gm above the table that like that sounds really cool and like, i think i want to incorporate that more into the story of my character as a as we move ahead or you could even you know move away from that if you are someone who began very grounded in in that mythos if that's the direction that the the party is moving in they're paying less attention to that and they're dealing with more temporal affairs that's totally fine as well right being flexible about that is important, especially in D&D and those kind of games, because as players are leveling, they're expecting like to have this greater impact on the world around them. And, and you know, like I said, like you don't really care about the creation of Eberron when you're killing some kobolds in a cave. But, you know, our our whole campaign ended up hinging on the creation myth and the draconic prophecy mm-hmm. in Eberron. Uh, so it became critical to every single player in the game that we understand it and that we explore it, um, which which became fascinating. But that slowly escalated as we leveled, right? Yeah, because when we started, you know, I knew as the GM of a game being set in Eberron how the world was created, right? There are three dragons, one of whom is dead now. Uh, Kyber kills Sybaris. Sybaris becomes the ring of Sybaris, which fuels arcane magic, which is why there's magic in Eberron. Eberron, the dragon, wraps herself around Kyber, 
and then Eberron births life and Kyber births demons. This is why there is evil in the world. Right. Uh, and very specifically, this is why the end evil that the Morning Glory campaign, uh, the characters needed to defeat, that's where this evil came from in the first place. Yeah, so let's let's dig into the Eberron myth a little further, actually, because um, like I I really like it. Eberron was so cleverly created holistically as a setting. Thanks, Keith. Like rather than just growing out of kind of games that people were playing or novels that someone was writing. So like when Keith Baker sat down and made it, like the the creation myth kind of pervades, right? Like like you said, there's this good and evil that gets introduced right in it. Like Kyber is sort of chaotic evil. Uh, Eberron is like neutral good and Sybaris is lawful good. Good outnumbers evil. And yet they still don't kill Kyber. <laughs> like all Eberron can do is contain him. Right. The only one that dies is Sybaris, right. right? So there is more good in the world, but one of the good dragons is dead. And now all that's left is one good dragon trying to contain one evil dragon. Right. Right. They're always in constant conflict. And, and yet there is still hope. Right. Um, which is spot on for Eberron, right? Because Eberron is a sort of pulpy shades of gray sort of setting. There's no like canonical alignment. Everyone makes decisions as best they can, you know, and there's there's obviously evil in the world. Uh, and there's also just people trying to do great things in the world and people just trying to get along. And then the other piece that's for me so brilliant about the creation myth of Eberron is the fact that Keith included the Draconic Prophecy <laughs> as sort of like, you know, Sybaris is dead, but still sort of informs what's going on in the world around everyone. And if you could only figure out how she was saying it or how it was being, if you could only interpret it correctly, you could use it for good. Right? Yeah, it's so nice as a GM to have these built-in levers where it is so ingrained in the mythos and it it the three dragons get spun out into everything happening in the setting. Right. Um, you know, Sybaris is the reason that there is magic. Eberron is the reason that uh, there is life. And that, you know, some speculate that there are dragon marks. And Kyber is the reason that there are, you know, fiendish overlords. Um, and, and of course, all of the planes, right? You've got um, 13 different planes that are sort of rotating around the material all created by and touched by the different progenitor dragons and right. depending on which dragon made that particular plane depends on the alignment of that plane mm -hmm. and so when you when you understand the myth then so much more information starts to make sense and then as a gm you can you can pull on any of those threads to make something in the setting more relevant to your players or to nudge them in a particular direction. And as a player, you can choose to like grasp hold onto some of that information. Mm -hmm. um, like you, when we were deciding, you know, whether you were going to retcon a character or you were going to like get rid of a character and like bring in a new one, latched onto the idea of being a, a sorcerer who's like in tune with Sybaris, mm -hmm. dead Sybaris, you know, himself. Right. Um, and the only reason that that was really possible for us, and that continued for probably like six or seven levels, the only reason that was possible for us is because you as a player and then also your character was able to really dig down into this creation mythos that uh, was accessible and wa was um, offered enough fodder for us to actually use in a detailed backstory. Yeah, it was, it was helpful to have like a coherent 
holistic creation myth, right, for that particular case. Like, I, I wouldn't have pursued that if it didn't exist. The fact that it existed inspired me to use it, basically. Right, and it automatically touches upon other things happening in the story. Right. right. You're dealing with the dragons in Argonessin, and they, of course, are aware of the progenitors. They um, understand, or they are investigating dragon marks, all of those things, you know. Right. And, and you say, okay, I'm a representative of Sybaris. They understand what that means. Right. And also understand how to disabuse me of that notion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they're like, hey, I mean, good first step. You understand who Sybaris is. You're better than most humans. <laughs> and let's be clear, you're still human. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm a half-elf. <laughs> I, I, you all look the same to me. All right. <laughs> you all taste the same to me. So the other cool thing about Eberron is that that's not even the only creation myth within Eberron, right? Uh, because the Church of the Silver Flame has their own creation myth about how the Silver Flame got started. I mean, it was only 700 years ago, so like, whatever. Right, it's like re- recent history, you yeah. know? Yeah, and that end- ended up informing a, a great deal of another part of your character. And then also, you know, gave the party a means by which they could attack the the end villain in the first place. Right, right. Not only that, but outside of our campaign, like the creation myth of the silver flame, like really informs the way the church actually behaves too. Right. So, so the idea here is like, there was the paladin Tyr Moran. She attempted to kill a fiend, uh, an overlord and with a quaddle, like ended up stabbing <laughs> through the quaddle into the fiend uh-huh. and trapping herself in the flame in the process in order to, permanently bind him but not necessarily again kill him right it mirrors the um initial creation myth right two goods one evil (laughs) just hold him in place right (laughs) um and it's really nice to have that that through line through the mythology um there's so many things that mirror each other within eberron to make everything coherent yeah and then you know, if you extrapolate out from that creation myth into what the Church of the Silver Flame has done in the history of Eberron, right? You've got, you know, that the idea of duty and sacrifice and and pure good and overcoming odds, right? Like that's that's the paladin and the quaddle. But then you also have all of the evil that the church has committed in the name of good, right? That's the shadow in the flame, like the fact that there is still a demon that is present in the in the good of the flame, right? So that's like the purge and their racist and xenophobic approach towards shifters, right? Like um, all of those things were done in the name of good, but are probably actually evil, right? I mean, for every two good things, the Church of the Silver Flame does. got to do one bad one. For every every two good inquisitors, (laughs) there's one brand to Uh, which was also like ended up kind of mirroring Brand as a character, really. You know, it was always two steps for good and one for evil, uh, or you know, one for greater good, as it were. <laughs> you know, same thing. <laughs> What's the difference? <laughs> so to wrap this up, um, creation myths that mirror the cultures that believe in those myths can really make a setting easier for your players to interact with. It really enriches a game world and and gives your players a touchstone yeah and and you know if players pick up hooks from your creation myth great that's that's another plot hook that you can incorporate into your campaign turn those myths into mysteries turn them into challenges turn them into conflicts uh and then let the players sort them out like that's that's the basis of a fantastic campaign in and of itself 
And I think lastly would be uh, make sure that you do appropriate real world cultures, right? You you want to take uh, the the mythos of people who actually exist and caricature it for your game, right? Definitely that. Yes. Okay. Good. Um, but actually, don't do that. No, don't do that. Uh, don't appropriate real world cultures, especially if they're still extant. Yeah. Like, don't do it in your fiction either. Yeah, <laughs> I, like I don't feel real bad about like the Norse <laughs> thing, you know. But like, if it's something that people still believe, like I don't know, maybe leave it out. Though you know, I say that, and like a lot of Scandinavian people still believe in like dwarves and stuff. So I don't know. It's because dwarves are real. Okay. All right. Well, I'm a Tolkienist. <laughs> All right. Do you hear that, Ishan? It's the church bells calling us to morning prayer for the, the Maiar and the Valar. You know, it is Iluvatar's day. We really should be worshiping appropriately, lest he, you know, bring down the Balrogs. Let's move on to the character creation forge and roll up a character who can appropriately worship him then. But before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sans Carne. That's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrillCast.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. So this week in the Character Creation Forge, we are building Odin. Anthony Hopkins? Uh, which movie is that? The Thor movies. Uh, yeah, I didn't see that. All of them. No. Nope. Really? No. Nope. You know, I don't like comic book movies. Three is great. That's what I hear, but I'm not going to watch the first two to find out. Oh, uh, don't worry. You don't need to. Okay, so who is Odin in, in actual-ish mythology? Uh, the Allfather. Correct. Mm-hmm. Um, the one who sees all, though he has but one eye. Indeed. Patron of ravens. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Rider of uh, eight-legged horses, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I've got a uh, a list here of some accomplishments. Oh, uh, Odin's resume. If o- you will. Well, yeah. well, Odin's European. It is his CV. His CV. Right. Yes. Okay. So, did you know he slew the giant Emir to create the world? I learned that earlier in this episode. He is obsessed with the pursuit of knowledge. Fair. He has wolf animal companions and raven familiars. He does ride an eight-legged steed, as you mentioned. He is also a master of disguise, and he makes a lot of bets with his wife, Frigg. You know, he, I, does he get along with Frigg better than, like, for example, Zeus gets along with Hera? Because I hope so. I, I, yeah, that's a good question. I mean... Is Odin going around no, no, no. banging literally everything the answer that he possibly can? The answer has to be can? yes. Yeah, it has to be yes, because he can't be worse than Zeus. Right. Right. <laughs> but, I mean, a default yes is not exactly... Uh, an endearing one. <laughs> right. Doesn't mean he's great. <laughs> right. It's just not Zeus. All right. So with all of these accomplishments, how could you possibly encapsulate this into a build? What is it? Lorebard 15, Beastmaster Ranger 3, Divination Wizard 2. I love how every time we need a character that's larger than life, Lorebard is the go-to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Who can do everything? In, in this case, though, <laughs> it, it actually makes a ton of sense for Odin because he is a god of knowledge. Mm-hmm. There is a knowledge cleric who who is good at that. Um, you know, you could you could think of a wizard because of intelligence, but Lorebard is really really good about just getting more information than anybody else. So, you've got. The Beastmaster Ranger, of course, gets you your wolf animal companion. Uh, unfortunately, you can't have two, but 
this scales poorly in the PHP version, but it does scale on character level. So while it scales poorly, it does at least scale some. Hey, it's better than nothing. From Divination Wizard, you're going to get Find Familiar, which will get you a Raven Familiar, of course. Um, and note that you'll be able to see through its eyes, just like Odin. Exactly. Uh, and, of course, you'll get Portent, which will help with gambling with Frigg, but also, you know, lets you literally see the future. And then Lorebard 15 gets you 8-level spells, as well as Expertise. Uh, and I would take Disguise, obviously, but also Arcana, History, and Nature, probably. You know, the I don't feel that Odin really cares about how to worship deities. I think he cares much more about, you know, the the nature of the world around him. Yeah, and I like how when we suggest four expertises, something like persuasion is almost always on the list or deception. And I like that Odin is really the type who isn't going to convince you of something. He'll just cast charm person. Right. <laughs> yeah, I don't have time for this. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm going to convince you that I was like an old witch when I cast it on you and, and not Odin. <laughs> uh, and then most importantly, uh, you will get magical secrets, which you can use for improved fine steed uh, in order to get a flying mount if not an eight-legged one i mean you can make it look like what you want right i, I would celestial horses celestial pegasi all have eight legs i agree mm -hmm. so in terms of leveling order you're going to start with six levels of bard then go ahead and get your three levels of ranger uh, then i would finish out bard and take wizard at the very end so you will not have your familiar until you're level 19 but i think you know, Odin really does need to ascend to godhood before he gets his raven. I mean, remember, you are a bard. You could take Find Familiar with Magical Secrets earlier on and then retrain it out. You but could. just you can't have it die. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, actually, no, here's what I would do. Okay, you have Arcana, right? Uh, out of Xanathar's Guide, you can now scribe scrolls. And it only costs one day and 25 gold pieces to scribe a first level scroll. So you're going to keep scribing your Find Familiar when you need one? Uh, yeah, I would take Find Familiar, right? And then while you know that spell, just scribe 100 copies of it. Okay. Whatever. <laughs> and then undo right? it. Like, yeah, like around level 10. Right. And then just learn a different spell instead, at least until you get to level 19. You can cast it whenever you want. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. My Familiar died. Well, 35 gold pieces. <laughs> Uh, so I think in terms of uh, character for this one, obviously you begin as a you know humble human being who who goes on to do great things and eventually ascends into godhood, uh, just like Odin slaying the giant Ymir. I think this can also work nicely for um, someone who venerates Odin, like uh, a Valkyrie, because oh, yeah. eventually you do get a flying horse. Right, right. You know, um, and I believe they were Valkyries were like Odin's servants, right? They they did what he told them to do. I think they were more companions than servants. Yeah, more like his party. Oh, that's very Zeusy. Yeah. Mm. Well, I don't know. I, <laughs> I don't know if I trust Wikipedia enough on this. <laughs> we'll just go change it so we're right. <laughs> All right. Before we go, fix Wikipedia for us. Uh, let's take a moment to thank our Patreon supporters. Yeah, your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. And as an example of those rewards, you can check out the Character Creation Forge Codex, which is linked in the show notes and on Patreon. Uh, this was provided by our Patreons as a reward, and in it you can find every single build from the Character Creation Forge dating back to Episode 1, including Odin. 
So what do we have planned for next week's episode? We'll be continuing our series on how to play different races, and we'll be talking about an Eberron favorite, Warforged. I like this back-to-back Eberron-themed episodes. Yeah. It's, it's been a while. we got to get back to that. <laughs> Keith. What are we doing in the Character Creation Forge? Uh, we're building the Lord of Blades. Well, that's it for episode 134 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. 